0: Let's pray together. God, thank you very much for your word that we get a chance to study it here. It's so important for us to understand this book that we are banking our eternal hope on. We're grateful for the Old Testament that lays the foundation for the truth of Jesus Christ. And we'll even see that in our books that we cover tonight. We're so grateful for the way you've mapped this all out. As Isaiah says, you know the end from the very beginning. And you're the only person that can know those things. And uh, so we're grateful that we trust in you and you've given us a reliable record of your revelation to us and that we can study it. We can grapple with its challenges. We can uh, bank on its certainties and and we can learn of it. And then like Proverbs says, we need to dig for it as for hidden treasure. As a treasure hunter, would go after uh, silver and gold and precious stones. We want to dig into your word tonight. Think rightly about it as we get this overview, this survey of your word. And I pray you'd enlighten our minds and give us a great time being refreshed and nourished by the truth of your word in Jesus. His name. Amen. Well, since you have to dust off the cobwebs of your mind after such a long break that we've had, an unprecedented break in the middle of our OT survey, I know you're going to need this, this chart up here and fill it in for me. It's not on your worksheet, but since we performed only satisfactorily the last time, we're going to excel this time. Don't turn in your notes. Don't look through your notes. Right up here. Pencils down. The, the first book that we need to know is Genesis. Genesis. That's right. And the main concept of Genesis in one word, you would say, is beginnings. beginnings And the key chapter would be 12. And what happened in chapter 12? What is it now? Very important the Abrahamic covenant. A promise God makes to Abraham, and he's fulfilling it even to this day. The book of Exodus is number two. And if we were to summarize that with one word, we'd call that deliverance. And we know that took place in. Chapter 12, and what was happening in chapter 12? First Passover, very good. Numbers, the third book in our list, and the key word for that is wanderings, and that pivotal testing chapter is 14, and what happened there was a test of faith at Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. The fourth book would be Joshua, very good, and the key word would be, wow, conquest, shout it out. The key chapter, six, and they wrote a song about this. There was a battle there, the battle of Jericho. Very good. The fifth book in our timeline book would be the book of Judges. Not a happy book, it's a sad book, and it's all about failure. And that all started in chapter two. It starts early. And what starts there? The cycle of sin begins. Very good. Number six on our list would be the book of 1 Samuel. And the key word would be monarchy. We're going to talk about a king there. We're going to get our first king in chapter eight, and that's what happens there. Saul becomes the first king. Our seventh book would be. Second Samuel, of course. The key word there is, it's a person, David. The key chapter is seven. So important that we know chapter seven because in it we find the Davidic covenant. The eighth primary timeline book would be 1 Kings. Great, if we had one word to describe 1 Kings, it would be division because the kingdom divides and it took place in chapter 12 and Israel splits into two pieces. Second Kings is next, I'll give you that. And the key word is Captivity, And now that we have two kingdoms, we've got to have two key chapters, and they are 17 and 25. Very good. And what happened in in 25? The south, north and south. And what do we call the southern kingdom? Give me a name for that. Judah. What do we call the northern kingdom? Israel or Ephraim or Jacob. Can we ever call the south Israel? Answer? Yeah, you can. As a matter of fact, once the North fell, we see that term used for the south as well. By the New Testament times, we're talking about anybody from any part of the Old Testament kingdom as Israel. We've got an exile, and it lasts for how long? 70 years, they go off to Babylon. Name a couple people that you know went to exile in Babylon. Daniel, you know. Who else do you know? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, good. Uh, How about the last king? What's his name? Zedekiah, remember him? Got his eyes gouged out we got two books that speak to the restoration of Israel. The first book is Ezra, and the key word for Ezra is temple. Very important. They're going back to rebuild the temple, and they lay the foundation in chapter 6. Very good. Temple foundation is laid. The next book, or the last book, I should say, of the timeline of the Old Testament is the book of... The last book we dealt with last time we were together and the key word is walls and he completes the walls in what chapter? Chapter six. Very good. The walls were rebuilt. That'd be good to review before next week. We might just see that again. That's the entire timeline from the beginning, which we obviously are going to start at creation, but in our Old Testament thinking in terms of the promises of God, we start in chapter 12, the the Abrahamic covenant, and we go all the way to the restoration of Israel with Ezra and Nehemiah. They rebuild the temple, they rebuild the the walls, they rebuild the city, and now we're going to piece everything together from here on to the end until we get to Christmas time. We're going to piece all the rest of the Old Testament into this time frame between Genesis and Nehemiah, okay? And the first book we're going to go back and get is the book of Esther. So let's talk about Esther. First of all, let's talk about the purpose of Esther, the purpose of the book of Esther. We're going to demonstrate in this book God's providential protection, God's providential protection, particularly to encourage those people in the exile that God is providentially protecting his people. So much of what I've even referenced as we anticipate our study of the prophets is that God, though He's promising judgment, is always trying to put the silver lining on the statements and declarations of coming judgment with the fact that He is going to restore them, that if they confess their sins, if they are penitent, they are going to re- be returning. And it's not even conditional in the sense that God knows that they're going to. And in time, the generation that follows the generation that went off to captivity, they're going to come back and they're going to be restored. That's often with a kind of telescopic view into the future of the messianic kingdom, the coming kingdom. We call it the millennial kingdom. Nevertheless, there's constantly this encouragement. We have a whole book here that's supposed to encourage us that God is going to protect his people. His people will not be obliterated. They will not be in Annihilated. They will not be uh, taken out. They will survive, and God will care for his people. And this is a, uh, a scenario, a scene in the history of Israel in the exile where that takes place. It's to show God's faithfulness to his promises. Never are these books to be understood as God looking at people and saying, well, they're so good, I'm going to respond to their goodness. Though he does graciously respond to our confession and our repentance, we still see that all of this is for God's own glory and God's own faithfulness. His His promises are going to be fulfilled because he's a God who's faithful to his covenant promises. Time frame. We need to think through the time frame. I didn't recreate this whole chart, but I do want you to recall the chart because we have to fit in Esther, where she goes in the story as it relates to what's happening in the reconstitution of the Old Testament after the 70-year Babylonian exile. We said the first return, Zerubbabel's going to come and lead that first return. Ezra's going to lead the second return, and Nehemiah is going to lead the third return. And we've said this, if we understand it, are the three returns, like we had three deportations at the end of the southern kingdom of Judah. We've got three returns that take place, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And I said, in essence, we could have had three books here instead of two, because initially we had one book. One book, Ezra, Nehemiah, was one book, but really it talked about three returns and therefore we could have had three books, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah because what happens in these books is the three returns in 538, 458, and 444. The first half we find in Ezra 1 through 6. The second half in in, uh, Ezra 7 through 10. I mean the first half of the book and the second half of the book which is the first return and the second return. Then of course Nehemiah gets his entire uh, book here dedicated to him. But all of this was one book. We had a Persian king Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus was the Persian king. When we have the first part of Ezra being written, Zerubbabel is leading that return, and Cyrus is in charge of Persia. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, his son and his grandson even were defeated and cast out, cast aside, and we had the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. The king that is in the narrative of the second return is King Artaxerxes. Now, we've had two kings in between these two. We had Darius I, and we talked about this in the sequence of the kings of Persia, and we had Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, aka Xerxes, came before Artaxerxes, and before him was Darius I, and before him was Cyrus. So, we don't have any of that activity there spelled out because Ezra is trying to give us the first return information, then we have a gap of time, the second return information under Ezra, and the third return in Nehemiah, and Artaxerxes is still on the throne when Nehemiah comes and leads the return. He's the cupbearer, remember, to the king. The decree that first went out to go back under Zerubbabel, Cyrus the king, gives a decree to rebuild the temple. Artaxerxes is now the king when he decrees that he's going to provide resources, financial resources, to rebuild Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, of course, gets the go-ahead from Artaxerxes to go back and rebuild the walls. That's the time frame. We went through that in a little bit more detail when we were together last time. Esther fits right here, right in the middle, between the first return and the second return. That's where Esther and her story takes place between these two returns. Now, that makes sense if you know the book because we have a king that's reigning that she gets all entangled in the story of, and it's neither Cyrus the king nor is it Artaxerxes. Instead, he's introduced in verse 1 as Ahasuerus, who is a.k.a. Xerxes, which is a little confusing, especially because Artaxerxes and Xerxes sound a lot alike, but we need to remember this is taking place between these two returns. So that's the time frame, the historical context for the book of Esther. We've got some key characters in the book. Made this clear already. Ahasuerus is the Persian king. He's also known as Xerxes elsewhere in scripture and in history. And so we need to know he is the one in charge. And right out of the gate, we get that historical connection. Vashti is the queen. And she, in the story of Esther, is the one who's deposed, the Persian queen. And she really gets a a bum rap because she probably is with adequate propriety, refusing to go and engage in some kind of exhibitionism in a drunken party that King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, is throwing, and so she refuses, and uh, that sets up the drama in the story, and we are then introduced to Esther, and Esther is the heroine of the story, the key player the star of this show, a Jewish orphan. And uh, she is ending up this rags to riches story after a beauty contest becomes the queen. Mordecai is a key figure in this story as well. Mordecai is Esther's cousin and also the guardian that's raising Esther because she does not have her parents alive. She's deported just like Daniel. That's another name you could add to the list of people that are uh, away from Israel. And though some of her people had returned under Cyrus the king and even Darius, we have her still in the Mesopotamian area in Medo-Persia. And then lastly, we have the bad guy in the story, Haman. Haman is the Persian official, and he becomes the adversary to Israel, the Jewish adversary, and those are the key players. You've got those five people in your mind, and you understand who they are. You've got all the basic players in the story of Esther. There are our characters. Who wrote the book? We don't know. Uh, It is not stated, and there's no clear indication of this, There may be a couple things people point to. We'll look at one of them here in just a second. But traditionally, people have said, we think Mordecai is probably the likely author of the book. At least that's what some people say. Except at the end of the book, he's praised rather highly. And some people would say, it doesn't seem right that Mordecai would write all those things about himself. And maybe you've got a case. But the reason people think it's Mordecai is because of the brief little description of Mordecai in Esther chapter 9, verse 20, where it says, and Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both both near and far, and the verse goes on. But it speaks of at least the happenings in that particular chapter when we're having this victory that's, that's about to burst forth. We've got a description of him writing down these events. And so some have taken that to mean if he's doing that and recording these things, either that is the basis for whoever does write this book historically, much like Luke using source material to write the gospel of Luke uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Whoever wrote this book, people would say, well, either utilize Mordecai's record of this or perhaps Mordecai himself was the author. Either way, we can't be dogmatic or definitive about it. We can only say we don't exactly know. The outline of the book and the story of the book. I'll just take each chapter here and work our way through it. And most of you probably know the story. If not, uh, we've got a very interesting situation when Queen Vashti is deposed or removed from her position as the queen. And it takes place, I think, even with some, I don't know, guilt on King Xerxes' part in thinking that uh, he doesn't want to do what he's about to do in deposing his queen, but she has refused to do what he asked to do when he was going to lose face. So he ends up uh, getting rid of the queen, and chapter two is all about replacing the queen. This is the outline. Just we'll just go through every chapter here real quick, and and that's the interesting thing. This girl plucked from obscurity, this orphan who's a uh, a refugee from Israel, is enlisted because she's attractive, and she gets put into this uh, beauty regimen and basically a beauty pageant is. As crude as that may seem, ape-like, nevertheless, that's what, what King Ahasuerus was going to do. And so Esther wins this beauty contest, and she uh, becomes the queen. Haman, in chapter 3, plots to kill the Jews because Mordecai is refusing to bow down. He's much like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah a.k.a. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to the former administration of Mesopotamia, the Babylonians, and King Nebuchadnezzar's statue. You remember that in the plains of Dura. They weren't willing to bow, and neither was uh, Mordecai, who's a faithful Jew, not that he's a paragon of virtue or godliness in this book like Daniel. Nevertheless, he's still not gonna bow down to Haman, this person, and because of that, Haman get ticked off, and he's now set himself out to kill the Jews. He's even picked a date to do it. In chapter 4, Mordecai then says, we've got to fix the problem. We have a you know, a sword over our head. Dooms, doomsday is coming for the Israelites. We're going We're going to be destroyed. And so Mordecai says, this is the time. This is the reason God put you in this position of influence to make a difference for the nation of Israel. And so the people of Israel are going to be destroyed unless you intervene. And so Mordecai pushes from the shadows of this unfolding drama and tries to get her to go and intervene and save the Israelites because, of course, she is in a power position in In chapter 5, she goes about this series of banquets, the Esther banquets, to appeal to King Xerxes or Ahasuerus to go and try and do what she can to save her people. And so interesting, you see all this stuff happening as the story unfolds is really a masterfully told tale because you know what people don't know throughout the book is is interesting. And the irony of the book, of course, is the probably the hook and the tagline of the whole uh, book, one of the, the great things about it, the irony of the book. But nevertheless, there's all of this drama going on. There's a lot of questions about, well, who who knew what and when did they know it? And in this particular case, you see her being utilized by God to try and appeal to the king. And the king loved her and ended up conceding. Mordecai ends up being honored by King Xerxes, which is an interesting another one of these interesting things. He discovers the plot early in the book to kill King Ahasuerus. And because he reveals this plot and saves the king, King Xerxes, uh, he's never publicly honored. It's kind of a one of these situations he doesn't seem adequately re- rewarded for all of that. Well, the guy, Mordecai, who ends up uncovering the plot to kill the king, uh, now it's discovered, because of a case of insomnia on King Xerxes' part, that he reads some of the history of what happened in his reign, the Chronicles of the King, and finds out what had happened. And he says, this guy saved my life. It's amazing. Kind of like in the busyness of our lives, sometimes we stop and we look at something and we think, well, I didn't even think about how important this little chapter of my life was and how close I came to this demise or whatever it might be. And he realizes that. And so he says, i got to honor this guy. I've never done anything for this guy. Sometimes like we say, we haven't written a thank you note. Or we haven't responded. Or we gotta have those people over. It's this awareness of him saying, "I've got to make this right." So Mordecai is honored by King Xerxes in chapter six. Well, of course, that infuriates Haman, who hates Mordecai because he won't bow down to him early in the book, and so all the drama that unfolds in that particular chapter of him actually being hung, in part because his pleading with, his emasculated pleading with Esther to try and save his own skin, and he ends up basically uh, insulting Xerxes on every level, thinking that he's groping his queen, and here he is setting himself against the guy who saved his life. The turn of events ends up infuriating Xerxes, and he sends Haman to the gallows, which Haman had actually built so that he could kill Mordecai. And so the irony of that is he's hung on the very device of death that he had built for his enemies. Now, He's already told, because, and you remember this, I think, from reading the book, that you have this uh, law of the Medes and Persians that can't be overturned. It's like you saw even when uh, when, when, the Persian king said to, to Daniel, I, I've already given my word and given the law that cannot be overturned, that you can't pray. And David then was caught praying because of course his enemies were trying to uh, subvert his leadership and and try to frame him because they didn't like him, they were jealous of him. So he ends up saying, "I I can't revoke the law, but I'm gonna pray that everything's okay. And so he throws him into the lion's den, if you remember. It's the same situation here. The law to destroy the Jews, which Xerxes had signed off on, it couldn't be revoked. So all he could do, and this is an interesting picture almost of the gospel in that you've got this new law that's invoked now Xerxes says well I can't save you from the 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 mess that you're in here by revoking the law and saying well the the law doesn't matter let's just disregard the law but I'm going to create a new law that's going to supersede that law and it's going to supersede it in this way I'm going to give you Jews the right to defend yourself here from the attack of those that want to kill you that Haman had set in in motion And though the law is there and there's a price on your head, you guys go out and defend yourself and I'm gonna make sure that you're fully supported. And so that's exactly what happens in uh, chapter eight. The Jews are allowed to defend themselves in this uh, coming attack. Well, of course, as God would have it, his providential hand allows them to to ward off their attackers and they end up winning, winning decisively, as we often see in the Old Testament when God is on the side of those who are trusting in him. And as they do, and they recognize God's good hand working through all that had taken place so far in the book, uh, they celebrate a great deliverance and and a victory that takes place and they celebrate it uh, extensively in chapter nine with some detail described, even about exchanging gifts and giving food and having feasting and all the rest that takes place in chapter 9. And in the end, the ultimate turn of events, this man that was on the most wanted posters wouldn't bow down, uh, was faithful to his convictions, and now all of a sudden he has uh, somehow foiled the plan of those who wanted to kill him and his people. His adversary was hung on the gallows that were made for him. Now he's given a position of, of prime, some some equivalent of prime minister in the nation he's installed as a national official and uh this story ends as a comedy as it's put classically in drama in that everything works out and and in this case at least this chapter uh they live happily ever after that is the story of esther god's divine protection of his people through that turn of events now, there's a few things about this that are intriguing for most people and that is that there's the absence of God's name It's a good Bible trivia fact to know when someone says uh, what book of the Bible doesn't use the name of God or any name of God you'd probably say, well it sounds like a trick question there can't be a book of the Bible without the name of God in it well Esther is the book of the Bible that does not have God's name in it and that need not be a big head scratcher for you because as I've tried to explain even in telling the story this is a this is a description of God working as I often say in dis- distinguishing between the creative miracles of the Bible and the providential miracles of the Bible. He works within circumstances to get his job done. And that's how he normally goes about business, uh, even in the Bible. There's less than 100 creative miracles in the Bible. And today, of course, we recognize his work in providence, his hand working within the laws that he made. So you have a book here with no supernatural events. But what you have is supernatural events in the sense that they're done through the laws of, of everyday work. Everybody who died died by a sword thrust. And it was driven by a hand of an Israelite with a muscle on their arm and with strategic planning. All these things took place and God took all these unlikely events to accomplish His will. But it was done without any kind of uh, overt reference to God. And I think that's the whole purpose of this particular book. It's a lesson about providence. And what is providence? Here's what we would call it. It's God's secret or invisible hand of provision. No one could stand back and say, well I saw the clouds part or the sea part or i saw fire come down from heaven none of that takes place in esther it's all the unfolding of everyday events that then you stand back and say wow that was such an unlikely turn of events that that basically responded to the hopes of what the people of god wanted and even though they're never even called the people of god because the word god is never mentioned elohim yahweh none of it is there And yet we see that God's people, as they go about their work, and oftentimes with integrity and concern for what is right, they're rooting for the good guys. Uh, God says, I'm going to take care of you. And he does that through uh, invisible means. Now, if you just look for that theme throughout the book, you find it everywhere. Mordecai's good deed was somewhat concealed. It was hidden. It wasn't known until just the right moment. Esther hides her Jewish identity as the queen. I mean, they don't even know that. And you look for that. You wonder, when does Xerxes even figure out who she is? Well, she has to come and tell him who she is. He couldn't tell by looking at her, just like they couldn't see God's hand in looking at this whole story. Haman hides those. He hides those he seeks to destroy. You've got Mordecai hiding his relationship with Esther. He doesn't even say who he is or how they're related. You've got Esther uh, hiding the reasons for her banquets. And if you do a study on the chronology, there's lots of time between these banquets. And she's not even telling him. If you read the story, like just come out and say it, Esther, tell him. And you're waiting for all these things to happen. And yet they all work together without any overt and, and, and visible expression of the kinds of things we want to see And yet it works out perfectly. And that's the invisible hand of God at work within this book. And I almost think, I'm willing to say, this is a literary device in this book, recognized by the Jews as God's good hand of providence upon his people. When the rest of the world can't see it, we should be able to see it. And in this book, we see the name of God even concealed and tucked back to where it's not even over. It's not even revealed in the scripture. And yet you can't read this book without piecing together the story of the Exodus, watching Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego you tie all these things together Noah and the ark and the destruction of of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's deliverance you see the deliverance just like we've seen in every other passage of the Bible when God is sparing his people and being faithful to his covenant promises and yet you see it without anybody being able to say God's hand God's hand God's only God's people say that was God's hand God's hand God's hand and I hope you see that in your own life right I mean, a lot of people can look at your life and say, well, I, you know, I don't see any overt expressions of God breaking through into time and space to do these things, and yet you look back at the providence of your life, the decisions of your life, the circumstances of your life, the twists and turns of your life, and you realize that in all of that, God doesn't seem visibly present, but in the unfolding of the story, you look back and say, God was there doing all of that. What a turn of events that Haman, I mean, this high-ranking Persian official, ends up with all his hostility toward Israel being the guy... Who is his destroyed the people of God, spared by a girl that wasn't even identified as a Jewess from the beginning. It's a great story and a great picture of God's invisible hand of providence that all of us sort of recognize. It's the one book in the Bible God's name is not mentioned, and I think purposefully, so that we can recognize God's invisible hand of work providentially in our own life. The festival of Purim. I talked about chapter nine, the celebration. If you are aware of, of modern Judaism, you know that this is a very festive and important date on the calendar in the March, February, March time frame in the Hebrew month of Adar. It's a celebration that is is celebrated. So let's try and understand a little bit of that. Purim is anytime I said you see a word in scripture that doesn't seem to be a common word in an English dictionary, and it's got an I-M on the end of it, that's the transliteration of the ending of a Hebrew word that's plural, seraphim. Talk about a singular seraph or a cherub, but the cherubim is the plural of those things. Elohim, even that name for God, though that's a bit confusing, is a plural noun. And in this case, Purim is a plural noun, and it's the word for Lot's. Well, which not, uh, which again, you've got to have some biblical background or historic background to understand what that is. The lots are the things that you cast to try and divine the future, which wasn't something just done in Israel. It was something done in uh, the secular nations as well, because in Esther chapter 9, verse 24, it speaks of Haman casting lots. He's going to cast lots in knowing when to destroy the Israelites. And it says in Esther chapter 9, verse 24, Haman, as they look back on it, which is also referenced earlier in the book, but since the celebrations in chapter nine i 'm going to quote chapter nine verse twenty four that Haman, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and to cast purr now it's the singular there and it's of a Babylonian derivative, but it's ultimately the aramaic Hebrew word aramaic a dialect of hebrew it's the word you now translated plural, that is to cast lots, the lots perim plural, and he did all that to crush and destroy the people of God, destroy the Israelites, the Jews. So per is the lots, which back in the day would be like rocks with markings on it that they would spill out like dice, and that's I guess the modern equivalent of a, of a lot is is modern dice that you would roll, casting of lots. We see it in even in Acts chapter one. They no sanction by God, by the way, to pick a replacement for Judas. Remember that. Uh, Acts chapter 1 it said we only have 11, and God, Jesus always talked about 12. That's a very important number, certainly as it represents the church, as a kind of a mirroring of what you saw with the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, we lost Judas, so we need to replace him. Well, God had a plan to replace the 12th apostle, but they cast lots to figure that out, as they saw occasionally in the Old Testament, even the Levites doing such a thing to divine God's will. Proverbs talk about it. You can cast the lot in the lap, but the decision is, is from, from the Lord. Nevertheless, in the ancient Near East, you had Haman, the enemy of God, doing that very same thing. So that's the name, Purim. Purim is the festival. You don't see it back in the law of Moses. You see it instituted now near the end of the exile between the first and second return to Israel. And it is a festival. Today on the calendar, it's celebrated this way in a uh, reflection of what took place in the book of Esther chapter nine. And that is in the March February March time frame because it's a lunar calendar it's always shifting our Easter is always based on the lunar calendar and the Jewish calendar that's why our Easter always shifts around all the time and and so on the thirteenth at sunset you would have an evening here in modern Judaism you would have a service you have a service after some fasting depending on how devout you are maybe you'd fasted all day you come together that night. And you read the story of Esther. You read the whole book. Matter of fact, some of the most beautifully decorated uh, scrolls of antiquity, and and they're festively decorated with multicolor, are done from the book of Esther. And it's a special scroll, and it's going to inaugurate a festive time for the uh, Feast of Purim. But if you just go and look, Google image search for scrolls of Esther, you'll find some of the most fascinating and beautiful pictures of Hebrew script and Hebrew Uh, iconography, the the, the paintings on those scrolls. They would read it on the evening before the 14th and 15th. Then you'd have a two-day celebration. You still do. You go down to, you know, Temple Bethel, down the street here in Elisa Viejo, uh, and you've got to look at the Jewish calendar to convert it to our Roman calendar. You'd find out when it is into February beginning of March time frame generally and on the 14th and 15th after the service on the 13th you have a big celebration what's associated with that generally and i'm sure you've seen these are are the graggers which is a onomatopoeia it's also a yiddish word and it's these uh, noisemakers have you seen these before you spin these uh, they're called ratchets and they make them on all they make the old kind were made of wood you got them made of metal they made of plastic i've seen them made of legos i've seen all kinds of, of graggers some of the yiddish translations of that are, or representations of the groggers. Nevertheless, they're ratchets. That's what it means. And every time the story is told, and Haman's name comes up a lot in the story, he's the bad guy. Everyone in the synagogue is supposed to drown out the name of, of uh, Haman by ratcheting your ratchet, your grogger. So it's a, I mean, it's a fun time. As a matter of fact, if you want to go even to a serious synagogue, go on Purim. I mean, if you look, it's hard to look closely at this, but I mean, they got big dice at the front of the, of the auditorium. You've got the picture on the left of of Esther. You have the picture on the right of Mordecai. Uh, or maybe that's Haman, depending on whether he's scowling or not, and, and balloons and, and festivities. Matter of fact, it, I mean, it feels a lot like fall fest. Here's a picture in Israel of Purim. They dress the kids up uh, in costume. I mean, the advertisements for it usually use the costume. You've got the groggers. You've got these, they're called uh, Haman's ears, these little cookies. They have like fruit in the middle of them. They fold them up like little squares. You can see them passing them out. I mean, this is a modern day, obviously, celebration of Purim in a, in a modern synagogue. It's like the Fall Fest. It's uh, you know, Batman and and, uh, Woody and they're passing out Haman's ears and telling the story of Esther and you know, ratcheting their noisemakers. It's a very uh, festive time. That's Purim. It doesn't feel like Passover, obviously doesn't feel like Yom Kippur. It's a very different celebratory kind of uh, celebration. And if you go today, even to places like the more secular areas of Jerusalem, or you go to Tel Aviv on Adar the 13th and 14th, the uh, celebration of Purim, I mean, it's it obviously become somewhat secularized. You'll see people dressed up in very inappropriate costumes, but it's a celebration of this. If you trace it back and you wanted to find the connections. Like a lot of things, I guess, in our culture, we've lost the meaning of it all in modern celebrations. And yet there is a connection. And if you go to synagogue, you hear the story and you celebrate the fact that God providentially protects his people. Unlike Hanukkah, where the Rabbis have injected some mythology about things that had happened, like the cruise of oil that miraculously lasted, which was not at all a part of the historical record. Uh, but a 1,000 years later, or at least eight or 900 years later, that you started to see this story pop up of a miraculous event. This is clearly one that they will say today and, and want to say, this is God's working within nature. It's a GT2. It's a God thing within the, it's a miracle of the second order, God working within providence. That's Purim. And I think it has something to do with the absence of God's name. God showing his invisible hand of care. All right, that's Esther for you. I wanted to put that in last week, but we ran out of time. Today, I'd like to start on poetry. So let's talk a little bit about Old Testament poetry. Old Testament poetry. Now, the extent of poetry in the Old Testament is really extensive. It's everywhere. You can start in Genesis and start to find poetry. Lamech's poem or or song, it's called. Lamech's song in Genesis 8. Uh, Deborah's song in Judges. The song of the Israelites in in, in Exodus 13. You've got all of these songs that are given to us in metrical sentences. And and that's how, in your Bibles, you can tell the difference. Uh, There are some Bibles that will give you different kinds of layouts of verses if they're quotations from the Old Testament. I'm not counting that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you look through your Bible and you find you've got regular prose, which is normal narrative, and then you've got sections of a lot of white space. Well, clearly, if you go to the Psalms, you go to Proverbs, you go to Ecclesiastes, you've got a lot of that. But if you just start looking from the very beginning, thumbing through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all of a sudden, you'll go from prose and columns of justified text to these indented phrases, these metrical phrases. This is trying to give you a visual clue that we've gone from normal narrative discussion, writing of a literary genre to a new kind of genre that's representing something we call poetry. But it doesn't rhyme. Of course, even if it did rhyme, it would not rhyme in our language because it's not was not written in our language. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But there are six books of poetry. Six books of poetry. You got a lot of poetry in almost every book of the Bible, certainly in the Old Testament, tons of it, particularly in the prophets, filled with poetic statements. Uh, and, and all the way from Genesis to Malachi, you find poetic statement genres A genre just means a kind of literature a literature that's distinct in trying to communicate differently than others which by the way it's usually terse it's usually short it's usually imaginative it's usually emotive it's trying to emote kind of of, of inner response an emotive response an emotional response not always we'll talk about one exception to that but that kind of communication you've got in an, in an entirety well with little exception six dire books of the Old Testament. So let's walk through them. I I know you know them all, uh, and you know five of them very easily because they all all link together in the Bible. Job, which is gonna deal with, just in S, take the 30,000 foot overview, the problem of the righteous suffering. You got the problem of, of righteous people suffering. That obviously is what the book of Job is all about. And it's an entire poetical book that is given to us not in prose, not in just straight narrative. Although we learn the narrative, we hear the narrative, we see the narrative, but it's given to us in poetic form, as a poetic genre, a metrical structure. Psalms, of course, and in four words I can summarize it this way: That's the hymn book of Israel. It's the song book of Israel. That Greek word—that's what it means. Songs. That's what Psalms means. Proverbs. Proverbs is helpful. It's a title. We even use that word outside of the Bible. Proverbs are are these terse statements of wisdom to live by. Proverbs. Short, pithy, clear, concise. Here's how you ought to think. Here's how you ought to live. Wisdom to live by. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. If I were going to summarize this in one phrase, I'd say the lessons of godless living. We've got an entire poem for chapters and chapters, what, 13, 12 chapters of poems about godless living, life without God. Of course, it's trying to give us a lesson in all that, and sometimes we teach by giving bad examples, and so you have that in Ecclesiastes. Song of Solomon, a much debated book. We'll look at that, Lord willing, next time. Uh, Is all all about the gift of of marital love. People have really struggled with trying to interpret that book, and we'll try to tackle that briefly next time. Song of Solomon. Today, I hope just to get through Job Job and Psalms. There's one more. What is it? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. What would it be? Do you know? Think. One book full of poetry, Lamentations, very good, the book of Lamentations. Profound grief, and I'm going to add these words with hope. It's a poem of grief. It's a lament, which is aptly named. Lamentations is a lament. They're grieving in the book, or they say he's grieving because who wrote Lamentations? Jeremiah. Jeremiah is lamenting the fall of Jerusalem and the trampling of the holy place by the Babylonian soldiers and Nebuchadnezzar as the leader of Babylon. Lamentations. But there's hope great third chapter of Lamentation, a great book. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Lamentation. These are the six books of poetry in the Old Testament. Classes of Hebrew poetry. We need to think this through now. There's lyrical poetry, lyrical poetry. Like I've said, the song of Deborah, the song of Lamech, the song of the Israelites after the parting of the Red Sea. These are lyrics given to us, metrical lyrics, to be sung with music. Phonically, to hear music, to, to guide us in the singing, which, by the way, please keep in mind that the songs of the Old Testament would sound nothing like the songs of today. We've not even had our tonal scale. I know you think you know what the music in heaven's going to sound like, but it would sound very bizarre to those of most of church history and certainly the Old Testament. That's a whole other discussion. But music, uh, there's so many opinions about music because it's such a, a, an emotional expression of human experience, but you need to remember that the music itself would sound so different. You can go to some parts of the world where we were not working on the same tonal scale that we have now since Bach, Bach's day. Uh, very, very ch- It's changed very much. Nevertheless, lyrical poetry is the first kind. Then there's didactic poetry. I was reluctant to use that word, but we use it enough around here, I guess, for you to understand what it means. It's a Greek word for teaching. It's uh, teaching, it's lessons, it's exhortation, it's instruction. Didactic poetry is trying to give you some kind of, of lesson. Change your thinking, change your mind, change your behavior, didactic poetry. Lyrical, didactic, the third class of poetry in the Old Testament is called prophetic poetry. And This is interesting. There's something so special about the words of God coming through the prophets that this is given to us in metrical form. You see this throughout the, the prophets. and That's why we have so much white space there as you look at the layout of these terse statements coming from God. The prophets, when they say, thus saith the Lord, to use the King James phrase, thus says the Lord, that what comes next is given, most of the time, in metrical form as a revelatory statement. It's God's revelatory declarations given to us, not the way you would normally speak in, in prose or write in this case, this literary genre of poetry. So we'll look at how this works can work, and the types of it, but the classes right now is what I'm concerned with. Lyrical poetry, what's that? The kind we're going to sing. Didactic poetry, the kind you recite, usually given for memorization purposes, to be able to teach other people. Prophetic poetry, it's the way God chose to speak directly through the prophets in this, this metrical form. Then there's a lot of grief poetry. It's almost like when the words get super-duper important, they become, you know, they're phrased this way. Grief poetry is obviously self-explanatory, but they're earnest expressions of sorrow. When you get to that place so often in the Bible, even when you're not in these books of poetry, you can often find people in their pain breaking out in Scripture in these metrical statements. And we'll look at what kinds of poetry they are, but this is the category or class of poetry, and that is the expressions of sorrow and pain. We see a lot of that, of course, in the lyrical poetry. In other words, these can overlap. Lyrical poetry in the psalms, for instance, so many of them are lamentation psalms. They're psalms of people expressing great grief, but sometimes it's not meant to be lyrical or sung, and yet they're given to us in metrical form. There's dramatic poetry, and by that I mean sometimes these statements in the Bible inside and outside the poetic books, you've got a narration of dialogue and monologue. The book of Job is a classic example of this. The story is told and the monologues and dialogue is given to us in a poetic fashion. And again, this is odd to us because it's not the way we write books. I've written several books and, you know, you just break out into poetry in the middle of your your instruction. Or, you know, if you're getting a real heartfelt section of your book, you don't just start writing poetically. I mean, I guess some weird authors today do that. But I mean, most people trying to communicate, they don't break into that form of, of communication. And yet that's what we see in ancient Near Eastern literature, particularly in biblical literature. Good? You got all that? Talk about now the nature of it. What's it look like? What is the basic fundamental definition of what Hebrew poetry looks like? Well, here's the word, of course, probably not new to most of you. It's the word parallelism. And in a sense, it's the same word you could apply to most of our poetry today. I know there's many different classes. You go to college, you learn about you know different kinds of, of poetry. I took some of those poetry classes, maybe one, I don't know. But this word could fit. But it fits this way in Hebrew literature. It's what I like to call logical rhyming. It's logical rhyming, not phonic rhyming. There is a mental ringing and a, a mental connection from line to line in the metrical form. These terse, emotive, creative statements, they're put down for us to rhyme mentally, to rhyme logically, not phonically in my ear. And of course, I know that God would pick this without any doubt because he's saving people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And to rhyme phonically would not work as you try to translate these from one language to the other. And if you hear songs, sometimes they try to do this as you go from one language to the other. They try to make those songs rhyme in the receptor language when they translate a song. Today, normal, uh, up-to-date, modern songs, and it rarely carries the same weight as it does in the first and original language. Nevertheless, this can always work. This can work in any language. You can take a Hebrew parallelism, because it logically rhymes, and you can translate that into any language of the world, and it still works exactly the same way, with almost as much power as it does in the original language, because there's always a loss in translation. Nevertheless, it's a great way for God to work and communicate. Now, there's different kinds of parallelism. This is the most common that you'll see, at least the most familiar. Synonymous parallelism. Synonymous parallelism. I'll give you an example of this from Psalm 3. I just picked a real simple one here. Psalm 3, verse 1. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? You'd say right away, well, this is a you know a, a grief psalm. This is a poem of, of, of lamentation. You're right, it is. And he starts with, man, I got a lot of enemies. Okay, well, we're gonna logically rhyme that in the next line here with, man, I got, I got a lot of enemies. That's the concept. It's just synonymous parallelism. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Now, again, you lose a little bit sometimes because in English, you oftentimes don't have the kind of, of, of Sometimes I'll find English translators translating words like many. In this case, I didn't check it. I'd have to look it up. They'll translate the same English word in both parallel phrases, and yet in Hebrew, you might have two different phrases there. Not a, I, mean, I assume most translators are trying to avoid that. Nevertheless, you have that. And occasionally, by the way, you do have phonic rhyming. You have a lot of play on words in the original language we miss in our translations because sometimes they sound alike, but they're not trying to rhyme the way we rhyme with that ending and that phonic rhyming at the end of phrases. Nevertheless, there is some interesting interesting play on words and sound-alike words that are used to, to make a clever point. You get this. They're, it's all over the Old Testament. Synonymous parallelism. Antithetic parallelism is the next one, and it's very simple and easy to understand. Anathetic parallelism, we're just contrasting things here. We see this all over the Psalms, all over the poetic books. Psalm 90, verse 6. Speaking here of life, this is the oldest psalm in the Psalter. And this old psalm says, in the morning, speaking of life and people who are alive, it flourishes and and is renewed like young people. they, They seem so healthy. They seem so vibrant and full of energy. Well, in the evening, it fades and withers. And you got all the old people and they're dying and they're weak and they're hurting. This is the picture of contrastive parallelism or antithetic parallelism. And you find it often in all in all poetry whether i'm reading a poetic statement from nahum whether i'm reading a poetic statement from isaiah a poetic statement in genesis or a poetic statement in one of the six hebrew old testament books contrasting anathetic parallelism could have used contrasting parallelism i probably should have don't always follow the standard words and here's a good example of that is my word i like to use telescopic parallelism telescopic parallelism usually they call this synthetic parallelism something else but i don't think it communicates as, communicates as well as telescopic. When I think of telescopic, you think of that telescope, or maybe one day they'll talk about the, those little lightsabers you buy at Disneyland or Knott's Berry Farm. It goes ching 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 ching. That telescopic sense of you've got it contained, and then it goes out further, then it goes further, then it goes further. That kind of telescopic image is what you should have in mind when you think of this. And one of the classic ones, and I love this, this is such a preachable and clever verse in the Bible, Psalm 1-1 blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. That's one thought. You've made the container the case. We know we don't want people to be people that are hanging out with, getting their advice from, their life advice from evil people. That's not good. Now watch it telescope to the next level, or he stands in the way of sinners. Now the object is the same here, wicked and sinners. There's parallelism there, but we've just gone further From walking, which is a ambulatory moving, I'm hanging out with, walking down the road with, and now I'm stopping and I'm standing. And I'm standing there like I'd be standing if this was the entryway to a sinner's house. I'm not just walking home with someone, now I'm standing in their front porch or in their walkway and I'm I'm now hanging out with them and I've stopped my forward progress. Then we telescope it even further or sits in the seat of scoffers. Okay, we got parallelism, the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers. There's synonymous parallelism, but this is a telescopic parallelism because we've gone from walking with and hearing them to standing with, embracing and hearing what they're saying, absorbing what they're saying. And now I'm sitting in their seats and these are the people that are evil, they're sinners, they're scoffers. You look for that in scripture and you'll see it a lot. The Hebrew parallelism of poetry going from a statement that goes to the next level, to the next level, to the next level. Sometimes it's just two parallel statements. Sometimes like Psalm one, it's three in, in one sentence. You see that, telescopic. I don't think synthetic is as good as telescopic, but I grew up in school, they teach a synthetic parallel, telescopic parallelism. Much better in my opinion. Then there's illustrative parallelism. Illustrative parallelism. And they have all kinds of different names for this one. But I think that's the best, simplest, most self-explanatory way to label this. It's a kind of parallelism in Hebrew literature that simply illustrates. Psalm 42, one is a good example of this. We're just showing an analogy. Sometimes they call it analogous parallelism. You've got, as a deer pants for the flowing streams. You know the rest of this. So my soul... For you, O oh God, I long for God. Here he is in the best moment of his spiritual life, I suppose, as he 's feeling good, prayer life, Bible study, man, I want, I want more of God that 's like a deer that 's there licking up the, the, the brook of the, the cool water of the brook, wants more and more and more. Here he is saying, "Like a deer, so I want." It's poetic, it's creative, it's emotive, it's parallel, but it's a parallel, not of contrast. It's not a parallel of just straight parallel. It's uh, an analogy, an illustration, an illustrative parallelism. Number five. This is not a parallelism, but it is one of the unique features of Old Testament poetry. It's a, it's a tactic of Old Testament poetry, and it's a lot of places, and unfortunately, you rarely see it in our English translation. Psalm 9, Psalm 10, Psalm 25, Psalm 34, Psalm 37, Psalm 111, Psalm 112, Psalm 119, Psalm 145, the whole book of Lamentations, Proverbs 31. Uh, verses 10 through 31 on the virtuous woman. All of these are pro- acrostic poems. And that's just a quick list. There's probably more. I just did the ones I quickly looked up. Those you'll find everywhere. And the only place you probably say, oh, I know where that is, is Psalm 119. And why do you know it in Psalm 119? Because you get these weird words in front of all these paragraphs. It starts in Psalm 119.1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And it has this weird word at the top, Aleph. I remember one of our, speaking of patriarchs, one of the patriarchs in our church, his name was Zane. And some of you, maybe, I don't know if there's any old timers here, I, good friends with Zane. He's since gone on to be with Christ. But I asked him about his name. I said, that's a really strange name. Where did you get your name? And he said, well, my mom liked that section in Psalm 119 that in the King James Bible above that section of verses it said Zane. And I said, oh, that's the Hebrew word, the Hebrew character, Zion. So I always, I always laughed and made fun of him after that, that you're named after a letter, right? I mean, it's just it's strange. It doesn't really mean anything. But to the mom who named him said, I like those verses under that section in, in Hebrew of all those verses, what is it, eight verses in each section on that start with the letter Zion. And here it starts with blessed. And maybe some of you remember this. Uh, we've talked about it. It's one of the 12 tribes of Israel, that if you translate that name, it's a proper noun, but it's also uh, a descriptive word. It's the word blessed. There's another word for it. It translates sometimes happy the word is Asher. So Asher starts with Aleph. Aleph is the first letter of the alphabet. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, hey, Vav, Zion, He, Tate, Kaf. all the way down. We pass Zion down there. You've got all these letters are of, the, of the Hebrew alphabet, and the first set of verses start with Aleph. And then you see the next section, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, Hey, Vav, Zion, and you move down the alphabet. I talked about Psalm 31. Some of you People have studied this carefully because you'd like to be this virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. Do you see this right here? That first word, isha. Isha in Hebrew is the word for wife or woman. And that starts the first word. Now, I guess this doesn't help you if you don't know the Hebrew alphabet. But the next word here, the word for trust, batak, starts with bait. And you just walk, go right on down the line here, which means to trust. Gimel, which is the word do or does. Dalit starts the word here to seek. Be, hey. No, it's not B. It's the word she. By the way, sorry. Yeah, she. Hatav. She. Every, you go right on down the list, and there's I don't know how. Olive, Beit, gimel, dalit, hay, Zion, hate, tate, yod, kaf, lam. 23 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and all these chapters you'll find that have 23 verses. Sometimes you should stop and say, oh, they would have 22 actually because the word seen and sheen are, though they're separate letters, they're the same characters. So I know that's confusing, but Hebrew is confusing. So these 22 characters, if you have a passage with 22 verses, even just look through it, like the ones I just gave you, Psalm 9, 10, 25, 34, 37, 111, 112, 145. You're going to have those usually being 22 verses long, like you do in the book of Lamentations. Every chapter, 22 verses long, because it's an acrostic poem, which is just another device of Hebrew poetry. Is that interesting? Kind of? All right, good. Let's talk about the book of Job. The book of Job. Wow, are we just starting the book of Job? All right, we'll do this quickly. The historical setting of the book of Job. Let's start by sleuthing this out. Some clues. Job 42, verses 16 and 17. After this, this is the last chapter of the book of, of Job. After this, that's very important. After and after this, Job lived 140 years. It kind of rolled off this, you know, author's pen without any trouble. That does that bother you? Bother's me. After all this story, a lot has happened. Started when he's got a whole rich portfolio. He's got kids. He's got daughter-in-laws, and they. After all of this. He lives 140 years and he saw his sons and daughters and sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. Okay, that's a problem. It's a problem for me to put him anywhere close to other people in any generation that lives a lot less than that. Because I don't know how old you think he was when this book started. But if he was 60 years old, when all these things started to transpire, would you always, a well-established man with all these people? I mean, he's living over 200 years old. The longevity of Job. And you think, well, then it's a myth. It's symbolic. No, it's not a myth. or symbolic. Because as you recall, and I've done this before you, at least verbally, but let me do it for you now on a chart. If you start to chart the longevity of everyone that's named in the Bible and their ages are named, like Shem and Eber and Peleg and Nahor, Terah, and you move down and you get all your way down to David, where now I say, it says in scripture that David died at a good old age and he died at an age that's pretty normal for us. And yet earlier after the flood, you saw everybody before the flood, they're pushing a millennium. They're going eight, 900 years. And then after the flood, bam, we start to see this massive loss of, of life. I mean, we don't get anybody hardly out of there 600. We get down to 500, 400. We're, and soon we're down to the range of, well, like Job. Before long, we're in this uh, 200, 250 range and then it levels out after the patriarchs. And you remember that. Moses dying, Joshua dying, going back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We start to understand the exponential decrease of life after the flood. And I've talked about that before. But if you want to plot him on this line, and again, that's not a big sample section, but it is clearly giving us a a path of lifespan. You put him on that, you start to say, when could a guy live over 200 years and it not be a Guinness Book of World Records, noteworthy thing, and it's just a matter of fact. Well, you're going to have to push him back into the book of Genesis. Then you're going to have a guy that could live that long. Not prior to the flood, then you would lament that he only lived to be 210 years or whatever it might have been. But certainly after the flood, but soon after the flood, you've got a guy like that and it may fit. Here's another clue. Job chapter 1 verse 5, middle of the verse. Job, he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, speaking of his children. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned. Okay, your children have sinned and you're going to do what? You're going to offer burnt offerings? Now what happens when people in the Bible, like we've looked at the kings, some of the kings going there and trying to, uh, Hezekiah trying to offer burnt offerings or Saul trying to sacrifice. What happens? God doesn't go, that's fantastic. What a righteous man. Matter of fact, they're punished for that. Well, when would this happen that you could be, here's how I put it, serving as the priest of your own family? The only time that fits is back in the days of the patriarchs, one of the patriarchs in the middle of the book of Genesis. Certainly prior to the giving of the law and the rise of the priesthood, I shouldn't say the rise or the beginning, the commencement of the priesthood with Levi, it'd have to be prior to that for any of this to still be qualifying this man as a righteous man. Because everyone else that functions as a priest who's not a priest That doesn't work, and you certainly aren't doing it for your family. Even if you're a Levite, you're going to have to do it properly according to Levitical law. Therefore, we've got this going back early. Another clue here, Job 42.11. Job 42.11, and they showed him sympathies is the last chapter, nearing the end of the chapter, last book, I mean, last section here, all these people showed him sympathy because he was all brought back. God was restoring him. They comforted him for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him, now here's how it's translated in the ESV, a piece of money, kishita, the kishita, and a ring of gold. Now, if you wonder why the translators translated it as a piece of money, it's because they didn't know what else to do with it because it's not your normal, it's not your normal monetary unit. This is a very ancient monetary unit. And the place that we see it, the only other place we see it is in Genesis 33. That's the only time that currency is being used when buying a plot uh, in Shechem. It was done there to bury Joseph, and it was referred to later in the Judges, but it was looking back at it. So We have three references to this word, kishetah, and it's speaking of a currency, but it's foreign to Israel, and yet there it is, stuck in the end of the book of Job, and it's dating back to, oh, interestingly enough, the days of the patriarchs. In that case, In that case, Joseph's wife. The... Three clues, and there are others in this book. You've got a strong case that the historical setting of this is taking place in the patriarchal period. The patriarchal period is from Genesis chapter 10 to Genesis chapter 40. It makes sense that that's when all of this took place. The mention of the Sabaeans in chapter 1, Job's daughters being the heirs of the estate in Job 42, which wouldn't be how it would work after the Levitical law. You would have to work through a levitical marriage. The literary work similar to this, you certainly see, well, I won't get into all that, but you've got no references to the priesthood, the laws, the tabernacle, religious days, feast days, even a reference to God here, the unique vocabulary used, places in the book that are spoken of. They're spoken of also in the book of Genesis. I'm just looking at a list of vocabulary words that I wrote here in my notes. Back in Genesis 25, Tema, back in Genesis 25, anyway. The list goes on. Lots of clues. I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm overly concerned for it, but we need to put Job back in Genesis. And if you think back to our chart where we're going to put all this, Job is an early story. The question, though, is when was it written? If you look at the literary work itself, the parallelism, how it's constructed, how it's put together, how it's communicated, um, it seems to reflect this golden age of Jewish poetry, which was during the time of Solomon. Especially when you see what it's doing as a purposeful book to grapple with the theological question of why do the righteous suffer? This was the pressing question of the day in the monarchy, the united monarchy, the united kingdom of of David and Solomon. And lastly, I guess you can add to that, most people have thought this through before we came along and said, yes, this looks like something that Solomon would write. Now this you need to keep in mind, it's much like Moses, I guess, writing about the flood, Moses lives 2,000 years before Christ. The flood took place sometime before that, or even creation sometime, who knows how far before that. And God is granting him that ability to tell this story accurately under the guidance of the Spirit. We have this same thing happening here. We're assuming this is taking place somewhere around 1900 B.C., and yet... Solomon, if he did write this, is writing this in the 900s B.C., right, the the 10th century B.C. So this is an old story being told through the literary genre of the golden age of of biblical poetry. It's an old story written in a time when uh, things were being grappled with, like the problem of suffering and evil. Therefore, I'm going to give it a date of roughly 950 B.C., in the time of Solomon's reign. All right, what is the theological concern? Why do the righteous suffer? We said that. If you read elsewhere, you'll see what was normally considered the, what we call the retribution principle. And before you toss the retribution principle under the bus, it's everywhere in the Bible. For instance, Galatians says, God has not mocked a man... Whatever man sows, that he shall also reap. The book of Proverbs is full of principles of do this and this will happen. Don't do that and you'll avoid this. The retribution principle of having a, a reaping what you sow is all over the Bible, both Old and New Testament. This is clearly an exception to that principle. And we're trying to sort that out in a book like this. The answer is, well, at least threefold in the book. Why is it that someone like Job is suffering because he's presented to us in the first half of the first chapter such a godly, righteous man. Well, God's glory. Why? Because God is in a debate behind the scenes with a spiritual adversary. It certainly reveals this invisible world of, spiritual, of a spiritual battle. Now think that through. That's something that if you look at what we call progressive revelation, we don't have a real good development of that until the time of of Solomon. I shouldn't say a real good, you certainly have it beginning in Genesis, but you don't have the kind of description of this battle and this presentation before God and the demonic spirits that I can only assume are being sent out to do this work in Job chapter one. Uh, You've got so much given here of behind the curtain work, the enemy and God then having this battle about Job's loyalty. And so you see God's glory at stake. He loves me, not just because of the goods I give him, the spiritual adversary working behind the scenes. And then lastly, I guess, if you study what God says in his two speeches at the end of the book, he's basically saying, I got the rights over the creation. It's a lot like Jeremiah when he says, doesn't the potter have the rights over the the pot? I mean, if you're really waiting for the answer at the end of Job as to why Job suffered, God never really gives him one. What does he give him? He takes him to the zoo and he says, look at all the animals. He takes him to, you know, the meteorological society and says, look at the weather, look at the patterns of the earth, look at creation. Basically, who are you to answer Back to me. And that's what we're left with, both in the New Testament when we grapple with God's decisions, and in the Old Testament as well. That's why all those that are putting God on trial today in our evangelism, I guarantee they're not going to be spew, spewing their rancor before God and asking all their angry questions of God when they meet Him. Characters in the book, of course, you know Job. He's a very righteous. And wealthy man, that's how he's introduced. When I say righteous, I was asked on my radio show this week, we're not talking about absolute righteousness. No one's righteous but God. A lot of the book describes that because we're getting down down in that book to what is righteousness. No one's righteous before God. Not even the angels can be pure before God. How can a man be pure before God? But he's presented as righteous. Why is Because he's perfect? No, he's the Messiah? No, but he's relatively righteous. And in his relative righteousness, God rewards people for relative righteousness. He does. We're not saved by it. But he rewards that, and he had rewarded him. He rewards him at the end of the book. He rewarded him before he encountered this demise and this collapse of his life. And that's who we meet at the beginning of the book. Then he has three friends. And based on what he says to them in Job uh, chapter 16, they're miserable comforters. They're not very good at trying to help Job through his pain. And you might know their names or remember their names, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, which again may speak... To the timing of this book. Those are odd names. They're not the typical Israelite names. Matter of fact, the only Israelite name you have in the group is the fourth counselor, and he's an oddball, Elihu. Matter of fact, he's so odd in this book, people wonder, what is he all about? Where did he fit in? Some people would even argue who like to distrust the scripture. This must be some kind of later addition to the book, which I don't think it is. Nevertheless, he is a bit of a mysterious person. He's angered by the three friends' counsel. In that case, he's with God, because God is angered at so Iliph, far and Bildad. So he's zealous for God, that's good. He's mad at the three friends, God is too. He's ticked at Job, which God is also. So, so far it looks good. And then God never rebukes him in the epilogue. When God steps on the scene, we don't hear a rebuke. We hear a rebuke of all three friends, but we don't hear it of Ilahu. So you start to think maybe he's, Right on point. Well, if you study what he says, he's saying a lot of things Iliphaz said. He's, doing, he's talking a lot about the same things that we've heard the three friends say, particularly Iliphaz. So you think Ilahu and Iliphaz seem to be echoing the same kinds of things, and yet he comes out without any rebuke from God. So what's his story? When we preach through Job, if we ever do, we'll get into that. I think it's original the story. I don't think it's a later addition, as some people suggest, but he is a bit of a mystery as to what we are to make of him. His speeches are in Job 32 through 37, which I think I give you. I'm about to give you an outline. Here we go. Job's adversity, chapter one and two. Everything collapses. He's doing so well. He's so righteous. Satan says he only loves you, God, because you give him all those gifts, which I hope is not true of you. And initially, it wasn't certainly true of Job, and I don't think it was true of Job at all. He does get frustrated and angry at God, but at least initially. He says, God gave and God takes away, which, by the way, I dare you to think that way. That's very difficult. All the things God gives you, you get very possessive of. If he takes something from you, the Bible says it was not yours anyway. What do we have that we did not receive? If everything God gave you, he were to take away. I talked about my wife tonight, got started. That's a gift from God to me. Now, if, God, if you hear my wife gets killed tonight and I now have to live the rest of my life without her, you'd feel bad for me and you should. I feel bad for myself. But in reality, I shouldn't shake my fist at God. Why? Because I didn't create her. I didn't, I didn't, I can't. This is a gift from God. God gives gifts. Then we get very possessive about those gifts. And then if God wants to take those gifts away, he has every right to take them away. And And Job starts with that mindset and it's very good. It doesn't last. Matter of fact, in chapter three, he's lamenting his own life. He's wishing he weren't born. He's got a death wish in this chapter, which I understand and we can all identify with, but he deteriorates pretty quickly after the second chapter. And it doesn't help when his miserable comforters pop into this. And again, I say in chapter 16 is when he says that, right in the middle of the dialogue with the three friends. They speak, he responds. The next one speaks, he responds. The next one speaks, he responds. Then we have that strange inclusion of Elihu's four speeches in chapters 32 through 37. And then God comes on the scene. And as I said, he takes him to the zoo. He takes them you know, to the, the uh, astronomer's telescope. He talks about creation, and, and God basically puts him in his place without ever answering his question. Although at some point, Solomon, as he tries to describe all this, if he in fact is the author, gives us a sense of some of the things behind the scenes. Nevertheless, Job is never privy to that in the story, at least in the narrative of the the text. Nevertheless, he repents. He puts his hand over his mouth at the end of the book, and God restores him. So it's a big, fat detour in his life. And he is still... Grieving the memory of his children that died, and yet he's given more children. All of his stuff was stolen by the Sabaeans, and yet he gets it all back. All of his stuff was destroyed by the whirlwind and the storm, and yet he gets even more back. And he's revered even more than he was before. But it all was part of his understanding God's greatness and glory. He repents. Not the fact, and I don't mean that that he caused any of this initially. I'm just saying he repents at his response to, to how this all unfolded. The Psalms in 10 minutes. Authors. 50 anonymous psalms, no telling. David, of course, has the lion's share, or at least attributed to David, has the heading over these psalms, 73. Asaph comes in second here. For those that have been identified, and Asaph is one of David's chief musicians. He's got 12 that are ascribed to him. Sons of Korah. I know when you think of Korah, you think of those guys in Numbers who were the rebels against uh, Moses, but these are the musicians like Asaph. Asaph was a chief musician. Korah was, uh, the sons of Korah were those leading uh, worship in Israel in David's day. Solomon, of course, David's son. We have two from Solomon, we have one from Moses. That's the oldest psalm. I said that earlier. I quoted that contrastive parallelism, antithetic parallelism. That was Psalm 90, the oldest psalm that had to happen in the... Well, we'll look at that. I think i give a time frame here in a minute. Heman, which is the another man from David's day. Several people in the Bible named that, but the one we're talking about here, along with Ethan, several Ethans in the Bible, handful of them, I think, three or four. But this one is the one during David's reign. So that gives us a sense that we're with sons of Korah, Asaph, David, Solomon, Heman, Ethan. That's the majority of the Psalms. Fifty of them have no indication as to who wrote them. This is the songbook of Israel, as I said. The tradition is that, I should add this, that Ezra, they say, after the Babylonian captivity and the return to Israel, some believe he was the compiler of all these. And maybe the one who even helped with the superscriptions and telling us who, who did what. I... I have no comment on that because we have no proof of that. But that has been the tradition, people have said. The dates. The earliest, of course, is Moses. When did that happen? During the wilderness wanderings. That's in the 1400s BC. Most of them, as I said, were David, Solomon, sons of Korah, Asaph, Ethan. These guys were in the United Kingdom, 1050 to 930. And the latest, are a couple of the post-exilic songs. And that's in the 500s, the 6th century BC. Wanderings, United Kingdom, post-exilic period. Sub-collections, you're going to have to abbreviate this. It goes quick, simple, logical, easy, broken into five books. 41 Psalms, the first 41, book one. There's no grouping to that. There's no deciphering what, how those fit together. Some people try. Book two, this is where you have the songs of Korah. It's called the Miktam songs, which probably refer to some kind of literary or musical device of some kind. 31 of those in the second book. Book three is Psalm 73 through 89. You'll see these marked off in your Bible, by the way. You'll get to Psalm 42 and you'll go, oh, this says book two over the top. What does that mean? That means we're done with that potpourri section of Psalms. Book three, all the Psalms of Asaph are in this section with a few added on at the end. Psalms of Asaph are 73 through 83, I think it is. And then you get a few psalms after that. Book four, remember that starts with Moses. So there's some logic to that, at least in terms of, oh, there's the oldest psalm starting the fourth collection. Beyond that, I can't give you any designation of any assurance as to why those go together. Again, that's why people think there was a collector or compiler that put these together. And there was a reason that they were put in these collections. Some say just for the sake of the length of them. That may or may not be true. But then book five, Psalm 107 to Psalm 50, Psalm 150, that's 44 psalms. And these are, We call the Hallel Psalms or the Psalms of Thanksgiving and the Hallelujah Psalms, the Hallel Psalms, the Pilgrim Psalms are in here. There's a variety of these seeming congregational worship songs here, 44 of them at the end of the book. If you add those numbers up, I hope that's 150. 41, 31, 17, 17, 44 equals 150. There is a Psalm, 151, they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, interestingly enough. There was more copies of the Psalms in the Dead Sea Scrolls they found in 1947 and following the years after that than any other book of the Old Testament. And they found a Psalm 151 designated so in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it was a simple song of David's ascent to the throne from being a shepherd boy. But it is a head scratcher why that why we know nothing of that. Well, we did know something of it because it was found in the Septuagint, but it was never in the Jewish collection of Psalms. It was found in the Greek translation. I shouldn't have started that sentence, but Psalm 151 is an interesting Kind of historic question. The superscriptions, of course, that's the little heading above these psalms. They indicate authorship sometimes. They indicate circumstances sometimes. They indicate the occasion for use sometimes. Sometimes they talk about what the musical instructions are, play it on this particular thing. It's for the lyre. It's for the harp. It's for the wind instrument. It's for the pipe, it's for the horn, it's for the trumpet. Some translations, including the printed translations of the Hebrew Bible, give that a verse. So if you're just learning Hebrew, for instance, and you go to the Psalms and you try to look up Psalm 23.4, Psalm 23.4 is going to be Psalm 23.5, because if there's a superscription, then you're at least one number off because the Jewish Bibles count it. And some some older translations will still do that because they're ancient, but we just don't count them as a part of the Psalm in most English Bibles because we see it as a superscription you got that, got all that a lot of weird words things we don't know do it according to the the goats of whatever or the grazing lilies. or I mean, these clearly were musical terms that were understood. Even the word "sela" we don't quite understand. We don't know what it means. It could mean a musical interlude. It could mean a pause. It seems that you can look at how it's done. And some of you even said the superscriptions aren't superscriptions, they're subscriptions. I've read an article this year about that. You know, If you look at every superscription and said, does this better fit the psalm that follows or the psalm previous? Well, some they don't. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, there's no way that works. But in others of them, it seems to work. So there's a lot of questions and research that's done on the superscriptions. I was just killing time there so you could write all that down, but interesting research on the superscriptions. General types of Psalms. We can do this really quickly. Messianic Psalms, you're familiar with those. What is that? Predictions about Christ. And there's a lot of those, uh, at least that are referencing. I'm not saying they're like he's going to be born in Bethlehem. But the things that Jesus quotes, the things that happen to Christ, some are more direct. Psalm 110, Melchizedek, you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he become angry. And and why did the nations rage? And he set his king up. A lot of times there's a telescopic, to use that phrase again, reference to the sitting king and the ultimate king. And sometimes you can't, you know, like, why, why does the Lord say to my Lord. I mean, things like that, you just they don't make sense without looking beyond the king that sits on the throne. So they're not just about the king, King David or King Solomon. They're about King Jesus oftentimes. Psalm 22, Psalm 69. Yeah, and that's what I tried to say here. Contemporary king sometimes is in view also. The, the king at the time that the song was written. There's the song of ascent that's another word way to put that is the pilgrimage songs pilgrimage what is that well when we're going to jerusalem why would we go to jerusalem well because you're supposed to go to jerusalem for passover for the celebration of pentecost for the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles, it was called. And we were going to sing these songs while we traveled to the festival. You had to go back. If you lived in Judah, you had to go back to Jerusalem for those three festivals every year. And, and you couldn't just worship in your, in your local village with the local priest. You had to go to Jerusalem for the major, major gathering. So you'd sing the songs of ascent on your way there. That's another type of psalm. The lament psalms, obviously songs for those uh, in trouble. Uh, We get that phrase, uh, Don Carson's book, How Long, O Lord? We see that in the book of Revelation as well. But the crying out to God, I'm in trouble. How long are you going to wait? I'm crying out to you all day. I can't hear you. You're not answering me. Uh, These are the songs that are cries to God for help. And sometimes they're very dark. Matter of fact, that's why I think we identify with them so much when we're hurting. We go to the Psalms and we say, I'm hurting so bad. I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. We go to the Psalms. We see godly people having the same experience that we have in their pain. God protracting their pain and delaying their salvation. And we can identify with those. The imprecatory Psalms. People struggle with these, but basically they're God's people crying for justice. They want justice from God. And we see the imprecatory Psalms reflecting a lot of our heart too, though you wouldn't bring that to your small group and confess it all the time. You want God to shut the mouths of the critic and silence your opponent. And, but I want to add this. They are jealous for God's honor. There's a selfish kind of imprecatory psalm. Imprecatory, by the way, in Latin means to uh, invoke to invoke. And of course, the applied object is we're invoking a curse. We're invoking God's justice. We want God to get them. And that's an imprecatory psalm. But usually it's, I want God to get them not because they wronged me or they gave me a dirty look, because they're besmirching your honor. It's like when Goliath was in the Valley of Elah and cursing God and defying the armies of Israel. David was angry for God, jealous for God's honor. Testimonial psalms. We like these, we can identify with these as well. Someone gives a testimony of God's goodness in their life. A lot of the Psalms are like that. They're personal stories of deliverance and praise. God is worthy of praise, look what he did. He delivered me from the depths. He's my rock, he's my fortress. Look at how he's gone and and showed his faithfulness to me in the past. Penitential Psalms, been using that word a lot in this series on Sundays and Saturdays. The penitential Psalms, repentance, they're songs of confession, like Psalm 32, Psalm 51, David's song of uh, confession after Bathsheba. They're expressions of repentance. One more wisdom psalms. Oh, not one more. Three more, I think. Sorry, uh, wisdom psalms. Uh, these are calls to live for God. They're kind of like the proverbs, and they're very instructive. They're hortatory, as we say. They exhort you to do something. They're righteous instructions. Do this. Sometimes they're just calls to worship, but they're oftentimes about living right. There's the historical psalms. They retell Israel's past. It's funny, if you're reading the Old Testament, uh, the psalms, you're expecting a, you know, a statement of praise, and then you see all these historic things being recalled that you just read about in, in Judges, for instance. Uh, we used one of those, I think when we are in Judges, to show you the historical parallels there. We learned some things about Israel's history by reading those psalms. Praise for God's covenant-keeping. Just like in Esther, God has been good to his people and sometimes the psalms get very detailed about how God has done that. Lastly, I mean it this time, lastly, the creation psalms. These are worship in light of God's natural theology. God has expressed his glory in the heavens, right? Psalm 19, Psalm 8, you know, when I consider the work of your hands, you know, what is man that you would think of him? They're expressions of awe for God's power and God's creation, creation psalms, plenty of those. All right, that's all I had and I'm two minutes late. So let me pray quickly for you. God, thank you for your word. I just pray this would even get us interested next time we read through Esther or Job or Psalms that we'd just be excited about diving into those books, referencing them in our time with you, our morning time, talking to our kids about your word or our friends or in a small group. Just thanks so much, God, that we can learn a little background about these things and I pray it would equip us to be uh, people that rightly handle the word of truth. Thanks for this team, for this crowd, for our church family. Dismiss them now with uh, just your blessing and your good and your protection on their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.